0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, you're listening to a New Books Network podcast. My name is Shraddha Chatterjee, and I'm currently a doctoral candidate and Baniya Scholar at York University in Toronto. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Nishant Shahani about their newest book titled Pink Revolutions Globalization, Hindutva, and Queer Triangles in Contemporary India, published by Northwestern University Press in 2021. Nishant Shahani is an Associate Professor in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies and English at Washington State University. Thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking to us today, Dr. Shahani.
2: Thank you, Shraddha. Glad to be here.
1: Um, I'd like to begin by asking you my first question, which is, could you tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey, especially as it leads up to the framing of this book? And in other words, what made you realize this book needs to be written and how does that journey frame the book itself?
2: Thanks. Yeah, you know, in terms of the books need to be written, I want to try and frame this in more affirmative terms. Usually, you know, when we're trained in graduate school, we're often told to identify a gap in the literature and then, you know, we will come in and fill in that gap. And it's this almost... Um, the academic as a messiah role that I feel like I want to try and move away from. Um, I think there has been a lot of really exciting work in LGBT and queer studies in relation to the political economy of India, in which India is not simply a case study, right? Or an illustration, but a kind of uh, geopolitical placeholder from which theorizing can take place. And I wanted to be in conversation with some of this work. Um, You know, Anjali Arundekar and Geeta Patel have often talked about this idea of how geopolitics provides the illustrations, provides the exemplars, but never the epistemologies. Uh, And I wanted to take that critique really seriously in this book. Um, I wanted to see what happens when we reverse this trickle-down linearity, where it's not simply Western epistemologies that provide the framework and India becomes a kind of simple illustration. More historically, um, the 90s has always been a a kind of a primal scene in my work on uh, queer politics in India. Those were the years I grew up. Right in India. And those were the years of the big globalization boom, which is often framed as quote-unquote revolutionary. And I wanted to revisit that. I wanted to see how this idea of a, a revolutionary time was actually predicated on certain violent foreclosures and the retrenchment of economic caste and class disparities. Um, I was also interested in how very often the emergence of queerness gets attached to this revolutionary story of globalization, so that neoliberalism and queer visibility begin to emerge at the same moment. So I I wanted to think about this convergence, this, this folding of queerness into neoliberal modernity, in order to ultimately ask the question, is is there a way for queer sexual politics to not simply reproduce neoliberal imperatives right and next i would say that a longer intellectual and political journey of this book is informed by the rise of hindutva and its its parochialisms right to think about the way in which uh, anti muslim ideologies don't just dovetail with gender and sexuality but are actually constitutive of one another. And and finally, I think I was coming across various examples of texts and narratives about modernizing, quote-unquote, Hinduism for the 20th and 21st century that actually incorporated queerness into this modernizing project. Uh, And and here, queerness functions as almost um, a progressive alibi for the investments in, in rethinking India as a Hindu nation state. Uh, so so the book serves as a way of thinking through and and thinking beyond some of these entanglements.
1: Um, and, you know, so many interesting things here to pick apart from what you just said, but I'll come back to some of them after I ask you, what would you say the central arguments of the book are and how are the chapters organized?
0: Yeah, I, I think
2: a good place to start in answering that question is the very title of the book, Pink Revolutions, right? Um, When people ask me about the title and ask me about the book, I I tend to get a bit defensive, (laughs) to be honest. Um, Because I do think in some ways my title is a bit misleading because there's a double meaning to the word Pink Revolutions. Now, on the one hand, it obviously... Is a way to reference LGBT visibility, correct? Uh, that has emerged in in the last two decades. But in the introduction of my book, I also talk about a different meaning of the term "pink revolutions," and I'm referring to a, a famous speech that um, Narendra Modi made before the 2014 elections, where he uses this phrase "pink revolution" to warn against. Congress support of beef export right which was predicated on the slaughter of the the sacred Hindu cow now pink in this context refers to the vulnerable exposed flesh of, of the cow of, of animals right so he asks his audience with this his usual you know rhetorical flourish do you want to support a government that will bring about a pink revolution? So I was really interested in this double play on Pink Revolution, right? Which means both cow protectionism, uh, but also LGBT visibility. Now, both are feared, but both are also mobilized to produce what I call in the book, national fictions and fictional nations, right? So very broadly speaking, the book is looking at the place of sexual politics, in India post-1990s, in which queerness is policed and regulated by the heteronormative logics of Hindutva, but also how it is interpolated, uh, how it is productive for a quote-unquote revolutionary nation-state that is aspiring towards global modernity. So, the, the broader question is how are queer economies in India mediated by the the joint operations of global capitalism on the one hand and national parochialisms on the other yeah.
1: um and i I think that was a great way of putting across what the book largely is and what it does and um you know a few times you, just in our talking and and many times in the book you do talk about how queer politics in India or queerness in India generally um, actually shores up in some ways Hindu nationalism and can be adjacent to it. And could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I I think, you know, this is an, an interesting moment in um, queer politics and queer horizons in India, where what we find is queerness being absorbed by the nation state, right? Um, this has a lot, I, I'm basing a lot of these critiques on, you know, the work in queer studies on homonationalism, right? That, that historically, queerness and the nation state are seen as antithetical, are seen as, as oppositional. Um, But in the last decades, there has been a gesture towards incorporation, a kind of folding in of queerness into the nation state. Um, I think, you know, um, a good example of this would be in the conclusion of my book, where I talk about um, section 377, right? And how um this has been framed as a moment of queer liberty um but you also have um you know private corporate you know the corporate sphere um using this moment as a kind of corporate visibility a kind of pink washing which the nation state is very much invested in because it frames india as this progressive nation state that is participating in a kind of global cosmopolitanism itself so.
1: perfect thank you and you do begin your book by highlighting a very central debate in queer studies that in a very broad sense focuses on defining queerness through its potential for radical transformation and Like you just said yourself that, uh, you know, historically, queerness has been seen as something that resists nationalism and capitalism and imperialism and all other forms of structures of oppression. And as that marker for what is radical changes, meanings and uses of queerness also change. This is why queer studies is haunted by the perpetual question of what is queer about queer studies now. And in response to this debate, you ask what possibilities exist if we stay with the inadequacies of queerness, focusing on its limits instead. Um, could you talk a little bit about this, and specifically, how does this staying with the limits of queerness, so to speak, help you theorize pink revolutions?
2: Yeah, that's that's a great question. I would say, in in the last decade or so, there have been uh, several conversations around. You know the value of queer as a kind of political or epistemological category as as you gesture in your question, right what is queer about queer studies now what is what is left of queer both in the sense of what is remaining but also what is you know ideologically left of queer is is queer always already anti normative right and i I was interested in India's place in these conversations right? The nation state is still conceived in heteronormative terms, but at the same time, there is emerging a space where queerness is mobilized for nationalist purposes, right? And is also seeking inclusion by articulating itself in nationalist terms. So I think queer politics simultaneously constrains and enables India's worlding or modernity aspirations, it it operates both as an obstacle, as an impediment, but also as a kind of lucrative market, right, as I illustrate in the conclusion of the book. So, instead of assuming queer as always already oppressed, uh, or as always already radical, I wanted to in some ways wade through its messiness, right? How is it braided within power structures, even as it is not fully complicit or embedded within these power structures, right? Um, I think to sit with queer failure, for me, is not a foreclosure of agency or subversive practice, as much as it is a gauging of work that is still to be done beyond the kind of politics of fulfillment. and so, just a few examples to go back to your previous question of you know the the, the limits of, of queerness and its incorporation, right? Um, there's a chapter in the book on um, LGBT tourism in in Delhi, um, and in that chapter, I want to say suggest that it's insufficient to think about queer as anti-normative; that in fact, the marketing of Delhi as a safe queer space for the foreign gay tourist is actually predicated on the creation of certain sanctuaries that are almost safely cordoned off from a threatening public Indian sphere. And these sanctuaries for the global queer consumer are always saturated with social class and and caste privilege. right? Um, I'm also in another chapter think about how right-to-privacy models of sexual freedom. Um, They're always guaranteed by a reading down of Section 377, but they are inadequate if we consider queer bodies that are most vulnerable, right? Such as transgender sex workers who will always still be criminalized in a post-Section 377 milieu. So I think articulating some of the limits of queer as an epistemological or political framework allows us to think beyond the the here and now. It, it forces us to articulate a more uh, capacious political horizon um, or more intersectional epistemological frames. I'll, I'll stop there.
1: I you that was such a great way to put it as well, and um, I think this main argument also really. Uh, kind of ties together the whole book and across the book you do talk about triangulation very often you also use the framework of refraction very often and um, i I think the book is very interesting to me because it's always looking at three things and anytime you look at three things you're trying to bring in this conceptualization of it's almost like really to me a framework of triangulation and refraction so could you talk a little bit about that, and could you talk specifically to how this frame of three or triangulation helps you explain queer complicity with Hindu nationalism
2: yeah i I, I think the triangle for me, in its geometrical form is it's not linear right it it always refracts it it bends there's there's something convoluted and knotted about its, its structure. I, I wish I could show an image to the listeners of the cover of the book, which is um, by Avantika Bawa, who is uh, uh, an, an artist in uh, Vancouver, Washington. And the reason why I like that cover is that it has these really convoluted, messy, triangular knots, right? And you, you're absolutely right. The book is looking at these, these three phenomena, queer politics um, Hindutva, globalization, which at first don't seem to have anything to do with one another. But the three corners of the triangle are ultimately mutually dependent on one another, right? That's what makes them a triangle. So I wanted to map out this, this dependence, right? To to explore their triangulations, their their connections, which are not, always seamless. I mean, if I can offer, again, one example that might concretize these ideas. I was really interested in this tweet, which um, the Queer Hindu Alliance, you know, tweeted out. And that, just the fact that there is such (laughs) such a thing as a Queer Hindu Alliance to tell you something about these triangulations, (laughs) where they tweeted out this image of the Supreme Court as a triangular prism. And sort of the, the white light that goes through it becomes refracted as a rainbow, and I was interested again in this image of the Supreme Court as as a triangle that produces, you know, queer possibility and queer justice, and once again you have you know the image of um, the Indian flag superimposed on this which again references the absorption of queerness into national identity. But it's interesting how this idea of the Supreme Court, the Indian Supreme Court as symbolizing queer freedom takes place precisely at the moment in which you know the Indian army is a colonizing force. Uh, it also takes place at a moment in which the Supreme Court um, suggest that there is no such thing as marital rape, right? So, what is the work that this this pink washing, this queer washing of Indian jurisprudence creates at this moment of supposed victory? So I, I think for me the triangle becomes a way of exploring these these messy entanglements.
1: Um yeah, and thank you for referencing the Queer Hindu Alliance. I feel like many of us are very concerned by specifically that development and um i think it's been a little difficult to see that um a group like this has come into being and is continuing to do their work and you know um it can it can it can be like a whole different conversation so i i'm not going to get into that but
2: yeah yeah and you know it's it's sometimes it's framed in an insidious way right you have a lot of work that you know discusses this return to ancient indian scriptures to uncover queer genealogies right and while i i understand that impulse to find you know a, a broader history in which queerness and indigenous is compatible, it always returns to ancient Hindu roots, right? And so there's a kind of way in which that logic converges with the nativist impulse within Hindutva. Yeah.
1: Um yeah, yeah, precisely. And um I, I think this is the interesting thing that when this kind of work started happening in the 90s and early 2000s, it was very welcome because not a lot of other work was happening on queerness and queer life. And um, very interestingly, this, like in, in many ways, this work was also done in response to actually a Hindutva critique of queerness that it's not a part of India, India is not a queer country, et cetera. And now to find us just a few years away from that moment and um, seeing that this narrative also just produces Hindutva in a different way um, is quite fascinating.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I remember some of the first work that I read in sort of queer studies that looked at the Indian context was really the excellent historical work of someone like Ruth Vanita and Salim Kidwai, right. Who are, Uh, precisely trying to challenge this idea that we have no lesbians here and you know they point well actually if you do you know the work of historical archiving you you do see these traces but yes it's interesting how that gets then co-opted within um a more uh, parochial nativist attachment to the past right which is always a hindu
0: past slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Yeah. Um, And then, I guess, changing gears a little bit, you focused chapters two and chapter three on the queer will to life and chapters four and chapters five on queer necropolitics. So I think that's also a very interesting juxtaposition within the larger argument of your book. And I guess the question would be, what does this juxtaposition achieve or you know, what does this stark contrast do? Or rather, what did you want it to convey?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I am, again, building on some of the work of Jasper Are in Terrorist Assemblages, where she's interested in what she calls bio-necro-linkages. Uh, and what she means by that is how the management of life and the state's death-making machines are not these discrete separate phenomena, right, that they in some way, spiral around one another. So I think I wanted to show how the inclusion of queerness into the uh, biopolitical realm is always predicated on certain terms and conditions, right? So gay tourism is enabled since it facilitates global capital. Uh, sexual citizenship models can only be framed through right to privacy laws. Or the celebration of queer diaspora flourishes only when it is working in tandem with Hindutva logic. right? So in some senses, the queer will to life, right, the, the biopolitical, is always accompanied by by death worlds that get obscured, that get bracketed in this will to life. Um, And and so I was interested in juxtaposing both the bio and the necro. So with the necro, for instance, um, I look at chapters on intellectual patent wars in India that make HIV medication uh, out of reach for queer populations? What kind of deathly necropolitical impacts does that have? Or I look at queer bodies who cannot secure safety or privacy as a sanctuary, um, if, for instance, they might be sex workers, right? So in chapters two and three, queer bodies are attached or or, or sutured uh, to the nation state's will to revolutionary modernity. And, and, you know, whenever I use the word revolutionary, I, I know this is audio, so I should emphasize that revolutionary is always in, in quotation marks, right? Um, so queerness is attached to uh, a t- to technologies of life, to tourist economies, to legal inclusion, to nationalist pride. But, but how do death worlds circulate around these technologies of life what kind of exclusions and forms of abjection are such technologies predicated on so yeah i was interested in this apparent contradiction between life and death but then ultimately i wanted to show how they're actually mutually dependent right that how the creating of life worlds is is dependent on the investment in in death worlds yeah
1: um yeah, and I and I think the book does do that. And um in a way when you uh as a reader I found that when you kind of situate this like situate your writing in this juxtaposition between the will to life and then on queer necropolitics, you are also able to cover truly a dizzying array of subject material and tie it together, which is I think one of the really one of the strongest points of the book. Um, And in a strange way, your book also demonstrates the flexibility and the malleability of Hindutva. And it outlines the stuckness and the limits of queerness, which is, again, another really important um, and a very interesting feature of the book. And so could you talk to us a little bit about how the velocities and temporalities of Hindutva and queerness work together, work against each other, and specifically, how does your concept of nationalist drag feature into this?
2: This is a great question. I um, And I'm so glad you picked up on this. <laughs> yeah, that was important to me, so I'm, I'm, I appreciate that it's clear. Um, I guess w- one of the things that I was trying to unpack is how the project of Hindutva, while nativist in its ideological roots, very quickly understood that It would have to spin Hindutva as an ideology that is compatible with the demands of of neoliberal modernity, right? So I think Hindutva actually came up with a variety of ways on how to reconcile its inward directed religious and cultural nationalisms with outward looking economic policies, uh, you know, I, it reminds me of this slogan I see every time I return to Bombay. With the you know international airport, always has these flyers everywhere which say "Indian at heart, global in spirit," uh, or "Indian in spirit, global at heart." I, I forget exactly you know the exact code, but I think the most glaring example of Indian at heart, global spirit is. Uh, in the book, is this logic of flexibility that I describe in the encounter between uh, Modi and Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook, right? And this this meeting was always a mutually beneficial exchange, right? For Facebook, India was this lucrative market. And for India, it becomes a way to foreground its investments in technology and communications revolutions, right? Um, And at one point, You know, Sheryl Sandberg waxes eloquently on how she was so moved when um, Modi took to Facebook to get his uh, mother's blessings right after he won the election. So this this is yet another example when global capitalism functions in conjunction with rather than in opposition to the Hindu nation state. So I, I think here the temporality of Hindutva, to return to your question, is very deliberately paradoxical, right? It's this paradox is not this unintended consequence. It's very calculated and choreographed. It's a return to a nativist past, but it also has aspirations for the speedy entry into a superpower nationalist future that embraces the global marketplace. Um, you know, the, the, the quote that really, uh, I think, captures this is this phrase by Seema Biswas, where she talks about the investment is to be modern in an Indian way. And, and you see this play out in so many ways. Just the most cliched example I can think of is the Macalu burger at McDonald's, right? How it is this global multinational corporation, but it adapts locally and has your veggie alu burger right? So I think the book looks at how queerness gets almost caught up or ensnared in this new Swadeshi, right? It is stuck in these knots where it is simultaneously jettisoned as Western, not authentic, not native, but then increasingly it's also folded into modernity projects that allows in India and Hindutva to participate as progressive um, in, in a global uh, marketplace. Just one more comment about your question about nationalist drag. So, I'll I maybe explain this concept through an example um, again of this, this folding in of queerness into the nation state. One of the examples that I describe in the book is this YouTube video of Hijra singing the national anthem. Uh, And this is what I call nationalist drag. Um, This was right after a landmark judgment in 2013, the the NALSA judgment, which stands for National Legal Services Authority versus India, which recognized um, a third gender, right, as, as a legal category, which supposedly institutionalized the civil rights of trans people within the Indian constitution. So right after this ruling, the of Safar Trust released this video on the eve of Independence Day of a group of hijras singing the national anthem in a video uh, called Bharatiya Hum Biher, right? We, we are Indians too. And you have the hijras like sari clad. Once again, the Indian flag is superimposed. And so what I was interested in is what does it mean for queer bodies to pledge allegiance to the Indian flag? Right, so I, I see this ruling as an occasion through which the Indian nation state marks itself as achieving sort of the hallmark of neoliberal flexibility—it's its ability to stretch and accommodate the queer body. Um, so, so the law's flexibility almost becomes mobilized in the service of Indian exceptionalism. Um, this this literal layering. Of the queer body onto symbols of citizenship is what I mean by nationalist drag, and and here I'm not simply sort of punning on on drag as in drag queen, but I also mean drag more literally, right? Is an ideological coercion of of uh, that almost tugs or or pulls queer bodies into this false promise of um, post-liberalization India.
1: Um, thank you for explaining that so wonderfully. And of course, again, uh, this ad, you know, um, I, I'm not sure how, um, how to fully describe the the horror and the, you know, like, at, at having seen it for the first time, but, um, but I think one of the interesting things that your book also does, and I think that, um, it, you know, is it, quite exciting to think through really is that um, Hindutva actually does travel forward and backward in the current moment. And and I think it's very interesting to talk about because, um, as you rightly said, queerness gets folded into that. But at the same time, uh, what it does is it produces, um, I think, a very specific subsection of Hindutva followers or Hindu nationalists who also very much dislike the BJP for not being Hindutva enough and you know and I think that that to me is also like a very interesting moment um, or a very interesting discourse rather to kind of like watch play out that you know um, and and in those moments I think it's very interesting to also see them um, really hate on Modi or hate on the BJP for being progressive and Uh, you know and I and I think that that also becomes very very um I guess you know a a moment where a, a lot of contradiction can play out and I think your book is a way to kind of explain what's happening there and what's happening in that moment which is very exciting and you know certainly not something we see in queer studies very often um and and I guess you know, I'm a big fan of the work. But I I think my concluding question is only what are some of the provocations that you'd like to leave your readers with? Like, how would you like your book to be read? What would you like to be taken up? And also, what are some of the projects that you're excited to work on in the future?
2: Thanks. Yeah, I, you know, there's a quote, that begins the conclusion of my book, and it's a quote by um, the Dalit scholar Gopal Guru, uh, who in his book on humiliation asks uh, this really provocative question where he says, why, why do people walk into the disciplinary regime of the state? Um, I think this is a really powerful provocation to think about why we often think our liberation is tied to the state, which is actually the source of violence, right? Um, So perhaps to end, I want my readers to think of, instead of walking into the disciplinary realms and regimes of the state, what might it mean to... Think beyond its myopias, right? To 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 challenge nationalist drag, um, to imagine a different kind of revolution that might allow us to drag the nation, right? Um, so rather than uh, pledging allegiance to the Indian flag in an age of everything from sedition charges, compulsory patriotism. Citizenship Amendment Acts, right? Maybe the time has come to drag ourselves out of nationalism, right? And it is easy to be seduced by inclusion. You know? But ultimately, I don't think that is where queer liberation lies, right? In terms of um, what I'm working on now, it's um, I, I think I... I definitely need a break from, you know, book projects. So I have, you know, small um, uh, projects that I'm thinking about. And of course, right now, COVID is on everyone's mind. But interestingly, while I was working on this monograph, I was also working with a couple of um, colleagues um, on AIDS activism. And we brought out a book called AIDS and the Distribution of Crises that was looking at... um, This idea that pandemics don't have neat beginnings and endings. And our reason for thinking about that was to contest this idea that AIDS is over. And strangely enough, the book comes out right smack dab in the middle of another pandemic. So I've been thinking about this idea in relation to COVID, how we can theorize pandemics um, and viruses as not having this neat origin point or ending point, uh, but instead thinking about the uneven distribution of life chances that is created by pandemic. So that's something I've been working on um, and thinking about since this book came out. Yeah,
1: um, Quite an exciting idea to be working on, to be sure, and extremely topical as well. Um, And very interestingly, I just finished doing a podcast with David Murray, who has an edited volume out also precisely on contesting this end of AIDS narrative. So, you know, uh, quite a coincidence really here. Um, And thank you so much for this very insightful and like very engaging conversation, Dr. Shahani. And, you know, for our listeners, I'd like to quote some lines from the book to end this interview. And I quote, I want to ask how the specificities of India's sexual economies provide the geopolitical ground through which queer theorizing might emerge. What if we were to narrate the story of revolutionary times through the queerness of this incoherence? What might we glean from paying attention to globalization as a process that generates immobility and disconnection rather than flexibility and easy movement? End quote. Revolutions is now available in bookstores and online. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much, Radha. And thank you for the really smart questions and for the rigorous engagement. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: I'm happy to do it.